Welcome to the Short Fuse podcast. James Baldwin once said that artists are here to disturb the peace. Through our Short Fuse conversations, we engage with artists, writers, musicians, and individuals who have a lens on what is happening in the liminal space we find ourselves working through. We reflect on and interpret the role of the arts in transforming and bringing our communities together. I am Elizabeth Howard, your host. Speaking of books, October, it's the season. The 75th anniversary of the Frankfurt Book Fair, founded in 1949, when 205 German exhibitors met for the first post-war book fair. The Brooklyn Book Festival, launched in 2006, 17 years ago, as a one-day event, now lasts eight days and includes 300 authors and a literary marketplace with 250 independent major booksellers. Now, after the pandemic that shut down most of the physical bookstores in the U.S., the Booksellers Association has nearly 300 more members than it did in 2019 and is at its highest levels in more than 20 years. In this episode of The Short Fuse, I'm in conversation with Anne Shelberg, who is the founder and editor of Book Post, a newsletter-based book review delivery service. We're going to talk about reading and the role of criticism and commentary, so well often overlooked. And welcome. Thank you. You were on the editorial staff of the New York Review of Books, 1988 to 2017, and worked closely with the brilliant and beloved editor Robert Silvers. We are all envious. <laughs> you spent a few years working with Roger Strauss at FSG and with poet Joseph Brodsky, and you're now his literary executor, and Susan Sontag, and you founded a literary magazine before Book Post. What was it like working at the epicenter of the New York Review of Books, a journal shaping opinion, intellectual thought, and conversation? I found it really thrilling, as you can see from the fact that I stayed for so long, even though it could be a pretty stressful environment. It didn't operate according to any corporate norms. It was really built around these powerful personalities of Bob Silvers and Barbara Epstein and the owner who had bought the review a few years before I arrived was very generous toward that uh, personal ecology. So it really kept going around them without sort of more uh, modern managerial interventions. It was very old fashioned in that way. And um, to me, there was always a sort of irony in that it was seen as something kind of erudite and intellectual, but its really founding purpose was to bring all sorts of ideas to anyone. The idea was we were supposed to be able to write about anything in a way that anybody could understand. And so for Bob, that principle, he was very much a reader and an accumulator of information himself. And his understanding of that vision was like really embedded in his approach to language. He, he wanted every sentence to be clear, to be enchanting or uh, manipulative. It was very much based in the idea of communicating ideas and being truthful. The education was down to the level of the sentence, and then it was very capacious. We, we were like always combing through all these catalogs, looking at books, trying to find new things to write about that we thought people would be interested in. He and Barbara Epstein founded it in, in 1963. And when he was at Harper's, he had commissioned Elizabeth Hardwick, and she published this article entitled The Decline of Book Reviewing. When you read it now, you think it could be in this current issue of Harper's and it would be just as relevant. She writes, 
criticism was flat praise and the faint dissension, the minimal style and the light little article, the absence of involvement, passion, character, eccentricity, the lack of, at last, of the literary tone of itself. So she was complaining about what was happening with, with criticism. And that's what the New York Review of Books was designed to pick up. Yeah, and you still, that complaint returns. You know, every now and then we have like a, a big public discourse around book reviewing, even though not maybe that many people read book reviews. And, you know, this argument comes forward about how it, it kind of falls into these patterns of being promotional or sort of working for the industry instead of engaging a, a more challenging way. It seems that there's so much swirling around in the world of publishing. It's like too many cords under a desk that are tangled together. And- the consolidation of publishers, the economics of publishing books, celebrity authors, social media, ebooks. Amazon introduced the Kindle in 2007 in the middle of the Depression. And everybody thought then that that was kind of the end of books and bookstores. It shifted the conversation from how we read, the devices we use, where we buy our books, how we promote them, away from thought and conversation. I mean, you were then at the New York Review of Books, so that must must have been... At the time of the Kindle. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, I actually think that the things that are produced on Kindle, on the Kindle, are still books. (laughs) To me, the important thing is to have magnitude of thought, sustained reflection, kind of demonstrable argument. Um, this is why I'm interested in doing book reviews, because I think it's a way of connecting immediate written culture, like newspapers and magazines, with something that's enduring and that can endure the test of time. It's kind of a way of touching them. Um, I, I think the thing with the Kindle, I mean, people had a lot of dread about the disappearance of the physical book. But the real problem with the Kindle was that it was designed to corner the market and as a a manipulative tool. And as we just saw, you know, just recently, there's this enormous Department of Justice. I forget what it's called. Is it an indictment, a challenge of Amazon um, for its monopolistic practices? And the Kindle was designed to uh, undermine the book business and to rest uh, the book business unto itself as a kind of prologue to resting all of commerce unto itself. So the, the way that they handled the book business was a kind of early warning sign of what was ahead um, and did huge damage to mm-hmm. um, the uh, intellectual health of the nation. But fortunately, bookselling and independent publishing have been incredibly resilient. Why do you think criticism and commentary, cultural news in general, dropped from newspapers? Well, it's the click-based economy problem, which is related to the algorithm economy problem, mm-hmm. that the, these digital mechanisms were completely focused on raw popularity. So they w- were very responsive to argument and dispute. They, they could see minutely which, what parts of a newspaper were getting more attention, what parts people were reading longer. And they sort of failed to recognize that people value the whole, like that that item of attention is connected to a whole experience. So they kind of shredded these old entities of newspapers and magazines into these kind of tiny items that would either shoot into um, uh, volatility or would just be abandoned completely. And they kind of left us without this larger palette. But books criticism, you know, what I really feel that we are missing 
is books criticism that's a part of people's day. You know, in the old days, you would open up your newspaper and you would find out about the local elections, about the school board, and also about the presidential elections or what, you know, international relations. But all these things would kind of come before you without you seeking them out. And that created this kind of rich intellectual diet that falls away when we just focus on the thing that catches people's attention the most. And it was the the curating the books that are reviewed is, is a major problem. One of the reasons I love going to the corner bookstore, for example, is because Les Chris Linehan curates the table in the front. So I know that I'm going to see interesting books. I'm not going to just see the ones that are on the bestseller list or the, the, the ones that are, are selling. Yeah, well, this is such an important point. You know, we now have this pervasive word, curation, which we didn't even have before. Like, we only used it in this very specific way because everything was curated. Somebody was making decisions about what we were seeing. But um, and now because we have this ability to track everybody's movements all the time, so much of what gets presented to us is presented on the basis of popularity. A Google search result is the thing that's clicked on by most people. What rises to the top of you know, an Amazon search supposedly is what's seen by most people. So now we have to kind of force this element of curation back into our worldview. And we see how, how necessary it is for us. I mean, that came up during the pandemic and people's this kind of wave of appreciation for the independent book selling. Even the influencer, the influencer arose to fill the gap of our uncurated universe. I go back to the Elizabeth Hardwick article when I think about criticism on social media, when she says books are born into a puddle of treacle. Yeah, I just saw something about how the movie industry relies so much on Rotten Tomatoes, but it's also very easy to game that system. I think you arrive at something really important because in our desperation to find kind of guidance through this vast, unregulated universe of information that's in front of us, Social media, which is so eager for our attention, rises to fill the void. But it has no time to really develop a recommendation. So we end up with, on in books especially, first on Instagram, first on YouTube, which where there was more time, then Instagram and now on TikTok. Very, very influential mechanisms for uh, promoting book sales, but on the very thinnest of bases. All the people, you know, basically on TikTok, what you do is cry, and that's what sells the book. So <laughs> it's it's about all about emotional response and doesn't uh, look any deeper into what a, a book has to offer, which is the whole point of talking about books. You've come from this very traditional background, and now you have started Book Post, which is online. What was the model? You're creating a new model. Yeah, well, I was actually approached by the founders of Substack before it launched. They were looking for a few um, beta projects to begin with, and they they were discussing doing a Substack newsletter based on my literary magazine, Little Star. And so I was kind of in talk, talking with them about that, and I was sort of interested in this new newsletter idea. It was so hard for me to believe that we could actually go back to email as a primary uh, form of communication. It seemed insane, but they were committed. They were convinced that this was going to be really important, and they were right. Well, I was talking with them about these then-growing realizations about the uh, dangerousness of the way social media works, that the algorithms that decided what we see were very influenced by kind of our worst impulses and they were sort of protecting us 
from ideas that were complicated or challenging, taking us any further, and that the newsletter was a way of avoiding these algorithmic tendencies because you choose a newsletter and then you get all of it, which is a little Mm -hmm. bit like the old-fashioned magazine idea, Mm -hmm. whole meal and not just the appetizer or the dessert. So as I was talking with them, we had the election of 2016, and my boss, I think my, my, my old boss and mentor, Bob, had already died at that point. So I felt there's a great shift in the environment, and it seemed to me of great urgency to find ways of getting serious, developed, well-documented, well-argued positions back into the bloodstream of American life. Like, what can we do? to make digital communications the way people accumulate information more substantive, more attached to uh, uh, documentation and demonstration. You know, there was all this talk then about people, uh, you know, the fact-based information economy. How can we revive it? So I felt that like a little thing that I could do toward reviving the fact-based economy was to attach it to books. And I wanted to create a way of talking about books that would be more mobile and not just be sitting with this sort of smallish group in New York and a few other cities that obsesses about books all the time, like how to move it back out into the world the way uh, book reviews used to do. So I started this newsletter. It's called Book Post. And you subscribe. I ask all the, a lot of the writers I used to work with at the New York Review and writers I worked with at Ferris Strauss and who I um, invited to my magazine, Little Star. A lot of them are very untechnological. I have one great writer, Joy Williams reviews frequently for me and is a, a a really wonderful novelist. She doesn't even, she doesn't even use email. She sends me uh, <laughs> manuscripts that are typed on a manual typewriter that we have to retype. And a lot of my writers have nothing to do with the internet at all. And so that, I feel like that's part of what I'm doing. I'm kind of feeding them in <laughs> to this way that many people read. And I'm trying to make the pieces smaller so that they can be a part of people's regular diet and they kind of come in you know, you don't get a huge thing that's many, many thousands of words long. You just get a little thing from time to time. And then alongside that, so the reviews are the bread and butter book post, but then I also kind of fell into commenting myself on the state of writing and reading and book selling and publishing and journalism and all of the ways that all of this is very much in turmoil. And What is your process selecting the book, since there's so many books being published today in in many categories. This grew exactly out of my experience at the New York Review. I mm-hmm. used to spend late into the night, I would sit with Bob in the office with books piled up around me and this elaborate list that I used to make and constantly update and talk with him about who should write about things and you know, what we should cover. So you know, decades of doing that with Bob. So I, I, I really absorbed uh, a lot of his thinking and, and Barbara's thinking about this. And really the main underlying point is not to cover everything because that's truly impossible, but to provide something that gives you a kind of uh, a, a landscape that's both beautiful and rich and balanced and kind of touches on things that kind of, that light up or that shed light on other so I go through all the catalogs of the books that are coming out and make myself lists. And I try to have a balance of, you know, science, history, fiction, writers from the past. I end up having a little bit more emphasis on literature. I'd rather have a little more nonfiction than I do. 
to me, that's the, the, the real fun and the heart, the intellectual heart. The pairing element is so subtle. You don't want to give people something as obvious or that they've written about a thousand times. You want it to be a little bit like billiard balls that hit off each other. You want to create a little spark. People do better with something you surprise them with than something they come up with. I would love to see some kind of analysis of the actual kind of economic and even editorial impact of books. Because that really, you and I, when you and I, when we were young, they didn't, it wasn't a thing. It was something that really happened, I think, in the 80s, um, where people figured out to do this. And then bookstores, I mean, publishers figured out how to capitalize on it. You know, they would publish special editions and they make up questions and stuff. And bookstores and libraries got in on it. And now it's just an absolutely fantastic engine of reading. People, yeah. it's, people are constantly being drawn into reading new stuff. They're talking about books with their friends. I just think it's marvelous. If there was any upside or whatever the word is for the pandemic, people started reading again and really thinking about their reading because they weren't doing it in a rush. They had the time. Yeah. It was so moving as a book person. Like, you know, we ne you never expected that some historical event would suddenly cause everybody to not only read, but like read in this public way and talk about it and come together around reading. We'd kind of, we thought of ourselves as being just like this kind of, you know, historic leftover. And then it really, you know, rose up to come to people's emotional rescue. I, um, I have these partnerships. I'm always partnered with an independent bookseller so that I link in the pieces out to them. And my partner for the summer did a lot of projects with their local public library. And I was talking to the librarian about those projects. And she said to me that they have a, um, they're a retirement community by the seashore and they have a lot of older people. And that before the pandemic, as those people got older, they just got lost. They were just kind of on their own. They lost their mobility. They, and they got disconnected from the community. But now because of, you know, the bookstore and the library together really powered up these remote events for the pandemic and all these elderly and infirm people were suddenly still connected. Mm. and they became this like and she said you know a lot of that they're very intellectual they have very interesting tastes just because of whatever about that particular demographic so it's become like this extremely lively thing but also an, a real source of uh a fellowship and solidarity for people who would otherwise be you know alone creative writing programs seem to be thriving can criticism and commentary be taught you know, I just read, and I didn't even know about this before, that the literary critic Merv Imre, I don't even know if Imre, I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name correctly. Uh, I thought she worked at Oxford, but she's just recently been brought to Wesleyan to create a school of criticism, which I think is so interesting. Um, throughout most of my career, the writing that people were taught to do in school couldn't be published. You know, the academic writing was a different sort of writing, and it, in many circles, it became uh, intentionally. Uh, you know, very much within a certain language of academia. And the idea was that they were kind of advancing this kind of specialized knowledge and it was a different project. Mm. And I think at a certain point, we started to see books that said that, you know, this isn't really helping us, you know, let that happen. We need specialization, but we also need uh, people who have learned a lot about literature to be able to communicate. About mm. so I think John Guillory, this um, uh, scholar has just come out with a big, important book where he kind of frames that out, like how 
the academy needs to find another way forward here. And I think by talking about the writing programs, uh, you bring in an important element because when young people only read literature from the point of view of thinking about how to write it, that's a narrow angle. Literature isn't written as an instruction on how to write other literature. <laughs> it's written as a, a, to be a part of a large life, a large intellectual existence, a large searching life. And we need to not only be reading literature in this kind of how-to spirit. So I, I think this project at Wesleyan is very good. I, and I think that there is, you know, a little bit of a developing idea in the academy that I was, I was invited to teach in the creative writing department at Bryn Mawr. Um, I, and I taught a course called Literary Journalism. And part of the reason I was there was that the department wanted to give the students an exposure to writing in another way. There's a really important essay by Rebecca West that called The Duty of Harsh Criticism that I think the New Republic has on their website that makes this very forceful argument. I think she actually wrote it in the 30s that if you have that triacally criticism that Elizabeth Parker was describing, it's worse than being bad for books. It's bad for the whole society because mm -hmm. it creates an atmosphere of passive acceptance and of lack of critical engagement with ideas. She was really kind of wailing on her newspaper culture to take up serious criticism of ideas in order to have a more serious, less supine and seriously engaged society. It's the sort of dumbing down of our society in general. You think rather than ban a book, you would write an essay about why you felt something mm. in this particular book was inappropriate. I would totally read that. If one of these people... If one of these people could sit down and make a sustained case for why these books should stay out of libraries, I haven't seen anyone attempt that. Well, what one hears is that these quotes are circulated and no one reads the larger book in which they take place. Like there was this famous incident a couple of weeks ago when uh, I think it was uh, Representative Kennedy read this really salty passage um, from a that's on many of these lists. And I heard an interview with the author of the book, and they said, if he just read a little further, he'd see that the character actually rejects that way of speaking. <laughs> like the whole point of that little passage is that the character's like, hears this from someone else and says, that's not me. That's not how I'm. And it's about, the book is about not being like that. <laughs> um, I think it was genderqueer. I'm not, I'm not sure. I think that's it. So, you know, the, they, these quotes are getting passed around, but the, the, the whole existence of the larger book isn't being taken in. You work with independent booksellers. I find the individuals who own and manage these stores are wonderful people because they know they're not working on Wall Street. They're just barely going to be able to make a living and sustain themselves, but it's going to be a struggle and they're not necessarily going to make money if book sales go down. What's it like working with some of these independent book store owners and advocates for books? Oh, it's so fantastic. Every one of them has their own story. My, my current partner is Source Bookseller in Detroit. And I, I wrote up the story of um, Janet Webster-Jones, who's the founder. And she came to it. She'd already had a whole career as a teacher in Detroit. 
And she just started selling books to her friends, like at, at church bazaars and stuff, because she was talking about them so much. And her friends were like, just get these books for us, please. And what that means is that that community was not being provided for. You know, they mm. could not find the books that she was talking mm. about. And so Janice started selling them at these fairs and kind of here and there. And she did that for 10 whole years until someone offered her a spot in a women's collective in downtown Detroit. And then like another, I think it was quite 10 years, seven, maybe after that, somebody offered her her own store. And now it's one of the great bookstores in America. It's like one of the like five most talked mentioned black owned bookstores in America. She has, because she's been started out selling her books in this kind of tiny quantity, she knows every single one of them and can talk about them in, in great detail. Like it, that is a true act of curation of her story. It's mostly nonfiction and that's kind of part of her point. So like, and every one of these stores has a, a story like this. I think what really interests me about the whole subject is that they are the ones really on the front lines of doing what I'm trying to do with book which is be out there in America. You know, out there, you, the, these books are on the street. People are walking past them. Uh, people hear about this author who's going to be in their town. It seems to me just the most important thing. I think that that's what libraries are doing. And, you know, I feel like we should just be pouring money into community theaters and local radio just so that people's neighborhoods and towns are, have, are richer. But one thing you find from working with booksellers a lot I mean, I'm working with this group that's trying to create and advocate a model for nonprofit bookstores because, um, like Jeff Deutsch at Seminary Co-op, which is one of the great bookstores in the country, has argued that uh, he cannot make more money by selling books. It actually costs him money to sell, to increase sales. It is not. It's not built to survive and it, it's not built for the people who work in bookstores to live a, a normal middle-class life. So we have got to find a way as a country to make these necessary cultural jobs livable. And that's part of the reason that I, try, I ended up putting these pieces that I in bookstores, uh, in book posts about the life, the life that it takes in order to bring books to people because it's not sustainable the way we have organized our society. You're doing such a wonderful job. It certainly is pushing a boulder up a hill. Well, there are just so many brilliant people who work on all this stuff anyway. I mean, that's just the wonderful thing. The whole idea that America is filled with these raving capitalists who only care about getting rich. But I look around and I see all these really, really brilliant people who are barely surviving, uh, translating being librarians, running, starting their own bookstores, starting their own publishing houses all over the country, um, and really making our society so much richer. We just need to make things not so hard. And also these, these jobs are jobs for people in the humanities. And, you know, we've had these, all these articles about how the humanities is in decline because only Google is, uh, you know, putting in money for buildings on university campuses and stuff. But if we could create jobs in which people are connected with the civilization and pass it on to other people, it makes the society richer. And why, why are we setting things up so that these people are starved out of work and then discouraged from pursuing education and enlightenment? I recently did a piece about write, prison writing and um, 
you know, these workshops and sort of, and groups that help support prison writers after they've been released. And one of the things they seem to say over and over again was until they encountered what is some person who managed to found a workshop in the prison that they were in, no one encouraged them. No, they had no encouragement. I know. And it's just so heartbreaking. Like these are, they were often people said, I always wanted to read more and be a writer, but everybody made fun of that and nobody ever helped. <laughs> that seems like an easy thing to do. How are people accessing and learning about book post? Ah, well, that is so hard. So everyone out there, <laughs> you know, we we're having this interesting moment where all of our old structures, you know, magazines and, you know, even possibly arguably book publishers are kind of breaking up and shifting. People are asked to pay directly for the things that they want to read. So in my case, when you pay to subscribe to Book Post, you're not just paying me. You are paying all these writers who I pay. Mm-hmm. I, I feel mm-hmm. I feel it's really important to pay people, honestly, for their work. So this is what I have to talk people into. But I, I'm aware that you're now hearing this on um, many fronts, and it is a, an ask. So, and also, you know, because social media has become much more inhospitable, you know, it used to be we, we would get tons and tons of attention out of Twitter and Facebook um, because people share things and you could easily, it would be easy for a small organization to get reach in that way. But for their various different reasons, they that has pretty much disappeared. So now we're all having to kind of scramble and um, create visibility for ourselves in this kind of Mm. So it's, uh, it takes a little creativity. <laughs> I wouldn't say it's like straightforward uh, <sighs> triumph, but it's a hustle. <laughs> and thank you. This was such a lovely conversation. How can our listeners be sure they can find Book Post? Oh, it is so easy. If you go to books.substack.com, you can read all of our free stuff. You can sign up for free trial, generously subscribe right out of the gate. I hope we add a few new subscribers. Oh, thank you so much. Well, what a rich conversation. I, I really, and thank you for the inspiring send-off. I feel newly, <laughs> newly invigorated for the fight. <laughs> I would like to thank Alex Waters, our technical producer, for his commitment to the short fuse and Bill Marks at the Arts Fuse for his financial support. The Short Fuse can be found through the Arts Fuse, the online journal of arts commentary and criticism, and through Apple, Spotify, and other podcast platforms. If you have enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe. You can support us through the Short Fuse podcast website. A link is in the episode notes. Follow us on Instagram and through LinkedIn. Join us next time when we engage, explore, and ask questions.